The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Friday, September 9th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the Pennsylvania Senate race is getting closer. John Fetterman's campaign strategy of not campaigning is proving to be costly. Mehmet Oz is banging on, and it would be malpractice, candidate malpractice if he weren't, about Fetterman's disinclination to participate in debates. So the polling showed consistently Fetterman up by double digits, but the last two polls out, an Emerson poll conducted in the last couple weeks of August, have Fetterman up by four, margin of error three, and a Susquehanna poll has Fetterman up by five. That was uh, conducted two weeks ago, margin of error 3.7. And I understand it. Yes, Fetterman had a stroke. And yes, it was wrong for Mehmet Oz's campaign to make fun of Fetterman's weight as a contributing factor to a stroke. Wrong, not because weight can't contribute to strokes, but wrong to make fun of it. However, voters do want to see candidates engaged in debates. And if you say it's unfair for Fetterman to be made to participate in debates, maybe you're questioning debates, not the fairness of this particular case. Voters want to use debates and do use debates to get a gauge of a candidate's mental acuity, their rhetorical fluency, their verbal dexterity. And this race should be no different. So I do think, not just because of the trajectory of the polls, but the fact that Fetterman's campaign seems to think that the downside of performing very poorly in a debate isn't worth the upside of just taking Oz's only real issue off the table. I do think the trajectory of the polls is going to continue. Things are going to get tighter, or maybe even Oz will win this race, which we didn't think he would. I'll also say, and again, if I haven't made this clear, I would vote for Fetterman 100 times out of 100. Oz is, I always thought, when he had the respect of Oprah Winfrey, he was actually a bit of a loon. He is now in league with Trump. He said that Biden won the election. He says that he doesn't support abortion in cases of rape and incest. But he's also said a little bit to the contrary to get the nomination for the Republican candidacy. Anyway, I do think that a lot of the reason that the polling will get tighter is that what Fetterman built his lead on, aside from Oz seeming like a dingbat, is the fact that Fetterman actively engaged in a Twitter and social media campaign of, as Bloomberg puts it in a headline, an effort to weirdify Oz. And it's not just the Bloomberg headline. This phrase was offered to them by Texas A&M professor of rhetoric, Jen Murchia, previous guest and friend of The Gist. Yes, the weirdification worked. But weirdification works when you're not really paying attention, when Oz is just a celebrity. With most celebrities, there's not a concentrated effort where there are stakes to proving that the guy's a little strange. So now that Fetterman was doing it, it seemed easy. There wasn't too much pushback to the idea that Oz says crudite and seems to live in a state different from the one he's trying to represent in the Senate. But once an election is upon us, I do think voters are going to take that weirdification effort a little less seriously. It will stop being so salient. And those two polls I cited show that independent voters are 10 points, 12 points favoring Oz. There aren't a lot of independents in a polarized state like Pennsylvania. However, there's one more effort of the Fetterman campaign I want to highlight. This was unearthed by Jezebel, and it was from a few years ago, 2014, I think. Mehmet Oz made an appearance on The Breakfast Club radio show. Here, let's play some of that. Okay, so he said, I can't stop smashing my cousin. We hooked up at a young age, and now in our 20s, 
She still wants it no matter how much I want to stop. I always give it to her. Help me. Now, what well, advice would you give that person? Uh, if you're uh, more than a first cousin away, it's not a big problem. Okay, so second cousin. <laughs> yeah. You know what's so funny? Because I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> How did you know that? Because you I'm smashed the country. Just, Third cousins. Yeah, it's fine. It's all good. So there is Oz answering a question about incest. And Fetterman is specifically using it. His followers and fans in the media are using it to make fun of Oz. Jezebel, many other left-wing sites are calling Oz's answer crazy or icky or off-putting. However, and here's the thing, it should be said, Oz is right. I looked up the data on this. First cousins who reproduce have a 4% chance of having offspring with a genetic defect that's compared to 2% in the general population. But this entirely disappears when it's second or third cousins. The lifespan of the offspring of second cousins is no different from the lifespan of everyone else. And so, why is this such a weird thing? Yeah, it's icky, but it's a sexual practice that has no basis other than a long-standing societal taboo arguing that it's wrong. If we applied that standard to other sexual practices that we should mock and make fun and think of disqualifying someone who says, actually, this sexual practice is perfectly fine, they're two consenting adults, and I know that society has previously thought it off-putting, but that's on society. That's not on the practitioners. That's not a standard that certainly the Democratic Party would want to endorse. This is not the kind of issue where people will come to their senses and Oz will eventually be buoyed by the fact that he was, I don't know, if not pro, then not anti-incest among second cousins. But if you're being entirely fair, there was nothing scientifically wrong with that answer. He also got into pheromones among children and their parents. And there I thought, okay, he's being wackadoo, Mehmet Oz. But no, he also seems to be right on this score. And this was surprising to me. There's some studies on this. In the British publication New Scientist, they published details about an aversion that family members have to each other's scent that could help prevent incest. There is a study, possible olfaction-based mechanisms in human kinship, recognition, and inbreeding avoidance. I didn't think it was true. And maybe it's not true. These studies aren't the strongest, but there's some scientific basis to what he was saying. And remember, he's answering questions from a morning zoo crew whose main host's middle name is Tha. And I like Charlemagne the God. He does a good job. Oz was a good guest for that show. He gave scientifically relevant information for the question they were curious about. And I don't think he should be punished for that. I definitely think he should be punished for many of his policy stances. Fetterman has better policies. I'd vote for him, even if he just tries to tweet his way to victory. Oz definitely is a weird guy, crudités notwithstanding, and he definitely lives in New Jersey, but he might be more wrong than right on the incest and pheromone score. This is really going to sink any chance I have of challenging Chuck Schumer in the Democratic primary, isn't it? On the show today, it is an N20. I shall spiel about all of your comments questions, letters, missives, misgivings. It's an epistolary spiel. But first, Ted K is back. 
the NAVA, North American Vexillological Association secretary and the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, is here to talk about a new study that you can participate in, a survey of 300 municipal flags. We go over a few of them. We talk about principles. And at the end, we do point an accusatory figure at some of the worst flags in America. But we, I think we do, do so from a position of kindness and uplift. Ted K up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're joined once more for a Vexillology Corner, Ted Kay. He is secretary of the North American Vexillological Association, the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, the longtime editor of the scholarly journal Raven, which is of the NAVA. And what a project NAVA and Ted are overseeing right now, sort of the culmination, maybe we could say, of much of his life's work. It's the Municipal Flag <laughs> Survey. Hundreds of municipalities have updated their flags, and he is asking the community, which includes you, Vexological Corner listener here on The Gist, to go in and weigh in on what you think of the new flags. Ted, hello. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, Mike. This is an exciting time for flag design. It is so exciting. So, and we'll put this link in our show page. You could go to the site and in batches of five, people get to vote on flags, if they're good or bad. Flags of different cities, from uh, Bath, Maine to Landsville, British Columbia. Tell me how this project came to be. NAVA is the North American Vexillological Association. It's the flag studies group of the United States and Canada. And we've been involved in advancing good flag design since the publication of Good Flag, Bad Flag almost 20 years ago. We are now embarking on evaluating flags that have been adopted by cities in the United States in the last seven years. There have been over 300 cities 
that have updated their flags or just plain adopted a flag, those that didn't have them. And they vary widely in design quality. We're asking the public and our members to rate the design qualities of those 300 plus flags. And it's gonna be very exciting to see which ones float to the top and which ones float downward. Yeah, so a couple of, uh, a couple of observations just right off the bat. Canadian cities have, te- well, I don't wanna be so judgmental, have flags that depart in significant ways from your principles of good flag designs. Hate to paint with too broad a brush, but apparently the Canadian flag designers have already bested me on that score. Have you noticed this? Yes, um, our survey, by the way, is just American city flags, not Canadian city flags. And in broad terms, uh, I think Canadian city flags would be rated higher on average than American city flags. There's more connection to heraldry in Canada, and Canadian cities have just been, on average, I'm saying, more careful about design. But there are real clinkers in Canada, just as there are in the United States. I I wanna add though, and this is an important point, we're not saying the flag is bad. We're saying the people are bad. No, wait, sorry. No, no, we're, we're not saying the flag is bad. We're saying that the design is ineffective in its purpose of a flag. And we need to keep in mind what a flag does. A flag's purpose is to represent a person, place, or thing at a distance on a piece of cloth while it's flapping and seen from both sides. And from that standard, so to speak, uh, only simple designs are going to be effective. You're not going to be able to make out all that detail at a distance for a flag that's got a lot of stuff on it. And so we're asking, it's really good flag design, bad flag design. And some people get twisted up here that you're you're saying our flag is bad. Well, we're saying your design is ineffective. That's what we're really saying. Right, it's so important. I should have learned this by now. We don't say it's a bad flag. We say it's ineffective design. Although remind me again of the name of your book. Well, now we, when we updated it (laughs) a couple of years ago, we put quotes around it. It's quote, Good, unquote, flag, quote, bad, unquote, flag. Good flag, Uh bad flag. So let me ask you a question, Ted. From a distance, can we see those quotes? (laughs) Indeed. I don't know if people read your book or heard the TED Talk that you did with Roman Mars, but a lot of these flags really do seem to take to heart exactly the principles that you're talking about. I'm looking at Madison, New Jersey, which in times of yore, uh, incorporated in 1889. I don't know where the old flag started from. It was an oddly rendered rose with many different lines. And one of the principles, can a fifth grader draw it easily? I'm going to say no. And it has the words in a very uh, teletype, digital uh, font, the kind of font whose sound goes like this. It has the names Madison, New Jersey. That was the old flag. The new flag is... Don't want to bias participants, but it does seem to adhere to many of the principles. And I'm wondering, just to take Madison, New Jersey, an example, or any other flag that you want to talk about, do you have knowledge that they were influenced by Nava, your work, or good quote, bad quote flag? Many of these flags were adopted through competitions or processes that we do know 
they were referring to the principles in good flag, bad flag. We'll see it on, on the website, help our city get a new flag design, here are principles to follow, and they will echo the principles of good flag, bad flag. In the case of Madison, New Jersey, I'm not aware of how they did it, but they got a, in my opinion, a successful outcome. I don't think I'll be biasing your your listeners who take the survey uh, when they get to Madison. Uh, I think they will see that that's a very effective flag. Uh, you're right. The previous flag actually wrote Madison, New Jersey on it. Uh, I think that font is called Courier. It echoes a, a typewriter. And um, uh, we, we like to say that if, if you have to write the name of your place on your flag, your symbolism has failed. You know, why not just write France on a flag? I take you now to the town of, I believe it's pronounced uh, German with a J, spelled with a J, German, Pennsylvania. And German, Pennsylvania claims, and I think it's a plausible claim, to be the town to have invented first aid. Now on the battlefield, first aid was rendered, but German Pennsylvania is a coal town and coal miners used to be afflicted by ailments and people used to just have to wait around until doctors showed up. And then Dr. Matthew J. Shields organized first aid for mine workers. That is great. If I were German, spelled with a J, German Pennsylvania, I'd be very proud of that association. Only the way this shows up on the flag is, I will describe the flag, it's a rectangular white field with the words German comma Pennsylvania. On the bottom of the flag are the words uh, in green, birthplace of first aid, in red, hometown of our hearts, and in the middle of the flag is a green cross and a red heart, large, abutting each other. There's a lot going on in this flag. And I think I might need some CPR afterwards. I love looking at this flag. It, it's it, it, the dean of my business school used to say, don't worry about making mistakes. You can always be used as a bad example. <laughs> and uh, I think this is a classic example of not understanding flag design. And I like to say inside every bad flag design, there's a great flag design trying to get out. And this that really, I, that is true. This is, that's so true of German, but go ahead. This, this is so easy. Uh, I, I love your accurate description. Uh, you know, what this flag does, what the design does is it says, um, here are a couple great symbols, a big green cross with a red heart, meaning birthplace of first aid and hometown of our hearts. That's this, what the symbols mean. But then the flag goes on to say, in case you didn't figure that out, let's write down what those symbols mean. Birthplace of first aid, hometown of our hearts. And if you didn't know that that's who it represents, we're going to write the name of our place on the flag, German Pennsylvania. Well, the point of a flag is to represent a place without writing the words. Otherwise, you just write the words. So that's right. they, they, they just sort of missed the memo that the big green uh. cross, like the Swiss cross or the American Red Cross cross in, in green, and the big Valentine heart will work just fine without saying what the symbols are or mean and what the whole flag yeah. represents. Yeah. Th that's, sort of, that's sort of like having a flag. Imagine this, 50 stars, <laughs> 
white stars in a blue square in the upper left-hand corner and 13 stripes. And writing down below, 50 current states, 13 original <laughs> colonies. And at the top, writing United States of America. Yeah. Or just like, these are the colonies on every stripe. And these are the flags. with These are the, these are the states with every star. And, and I don't, I, I mean, it's easy to make fun of these. And, and the people who design these flags and adopt them are well-intentioned, but they are misinformed or uh, not adequately informed. And once they're informed, if they can get past the politics of, oh, well, we already adopted this. Oh, we're going to look stupid if we change it. Um, they can, they can advance to a great city flag design. And if you took the words off this, I, I love this flag. I mean, you could even make the symbols bigger because the words take up some space that the symbols could grow into. So I have a question for you. Uh, I'm looking at Elk Ridge, Utah. I could, uh, I could be looking at other flags that fall into this category, which to me is sort of a beautiful picture. I will describe the flag. It's rectangular, three stripes, light blue, white, slightly thicker than the other two stripes, and the third stripe is green. On the flag, in silhouette, is a fairly highly accurately detailed picture of an elk. It's Elk Ridge. And it's a nice picture of an elk. And I wouldn't mind looking at this as art, but it clearly fails the test of can a fifth grader draw it. It's a professionally rendered elk in silhouette. What do you make of a flag like that? Uh, I, I think it's almost perfect. Uh, yes, the elk is not completely stylized. There's a lot of detail on it, but it's kind of hard to draw a stylized elk, uh, I think. And so uh, I, I give it some leeway on the uh, less stylization. I think the important thing is it's an elk on the Elk Ridge flag. And if you look at city flags in Utah, I think there are about six current city flags that really pop up to the top as, yeah, these are, these are, these are good flags. There's a whole lot of other flags in, uh, in the municipal flags of Utah that need a lot of work. I actually was at the capital, Salt Lake City, in January when they launched this Utah state flag uh, effort, the change of the Utah state flag, launched the competition and gave talks to several groups of youth city councilors from cities across Utah making the pitch to them that you've got a great opportunity to have great flags for your cities. And I used Elk Ridge as one of the examples of city flags that Utah could aspire to. In fact, the guy who led the competition in Elk Ridge joined me in those sessions to tell the story about how Elk Ridge went through the process of adopting that flag. If I could highlight a couple of others, Let's go to Davis, California, which I think, like uh, German, Pennsylvania, has the perfect idea of a flag right in it, uh, yet it presents itself quite imperfectly. And the flag that currently, uh, they seem to have no previous flag, but the flag that is currently adopted is a dark blue, I'd say navy blue background, and all the visuals are in white. And it is the big word, Davis, California dominating the flag. But then 
Within the D of Davis is a penny-farthing bicycle. And I don't know that any other flag in the United States has a penny-farthing bicycle. Uh, the history of the penny-farthing bicycle, it makes me want to look it up, what that history is. So I think I'm going to channel your answer, which is why not just go with the penny-farthing bicycle and eliminate the words? That's exactly right. Now, for the listeners who aren't looking at a picture, a penny-farthing bicycle uh, is that old-style bicycle with a great big, front wheel and a very small back wheel. The size of the coins, pennies and farthings, were big and small. And the uh, it's an ungeared bicycle, so the pedals are right on uh, transmitting the power to that big wheel, which is partly why the wheel was so big. I'm not sure why the penny farthing bicycle represents Davis, but I've seen it in the previous proposed flag for Davis the, that they called the, the people's flag. And indeed, uh, it's a, a very distinctive symbol. And to the extent that people associate that with Davis or learn to associate it with Davis, that would be the very effective symbol to put on the flag and to make the flag uh, to be the 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 prime symbol on the flag, as opposed to just writing the name on the flag and having a a little little symbol next to it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there is an actual connection other than Davis's love of the penny farthing, but go ahead. You got to have something, you know, pretty soon some community is going to claim the bird scooter. So if you can lay claim to the penny farthing, I think you've, uh, you know, you've made an attempt at branding, which I suppose. Well, and, and I would add that it doesn't have to be the ultimate symbol that, you know, that you're the only one with it, or it is the very best symbol for you. Uh, all it is is a marker. Um, Utah, for example, could have a beehive. It could have mountains. It could have arches. Just as long as you remember, oh, the flag with X on it represents Y place. You know, there are lots of trees in Canada besides maple trees. Why is the maple leaf? Well, that's just a convention. Okay, let's just pick a tree that, that grows across the country. That's good. But let's just pick that. The maple leaf, by the way, on Canada doesn't represent any specific species of maple, and there is no maple leaf that looks exactly like that. It's just, okay, let's just agree that that's what's going to represent us, and then we're going to tell everybody, and then when they see that symbol, they're going to know that's us. So the last thing I do want to ask you is just about in general colors. And by the way, I recommend that everyone go on this site, uh, vote, and just look, just cast your eyes on Concrete Washington's flag. I'll say no more uh, of that. Was it inspired by South Park? I'm not going to say anything more. But in terms of colors, I see a trend towards light blues or off blues and light greens. Uh, and, and the stark red and definitely the gold seems to have been phased out. Have you noticed this trend as well? What explains it? I think what explains it is people are designing flags on their computers. And so they have a million colors to choose from. Uh, if you go back um, not very many years when people were designing without computers, uh, and in fact, if they're designing knowing what flag fabrics were available to sew flags with, there were only 50 or so colors available from the mills that made flag fabric. Now flags can be printed digitally. So you can take those million colors from your computer and choose and get a million colors to come out of the digital printer. 
So there's a much broader palette available to the designers. The problem with that is if you're going to if you're going to have a big flag, you're not going to print it. You're going to sew that flag. So you need to have colors that actually do come from the basic color set that flag fabric manufacturers will provide. So you can get as fancy as you want with different colors, but ultimately when you want to make that flag in a, in a, in a big form, you're going to need to default back to a smaller, much smaller set of colors. Take note, future flag designers, consult your local seamstress before you get too fancy. Ted Kay is the secretary of the North American Vexillological Association, author of Good Flag, Bad Flag, now in quotes. Thank you again, Ted. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for sharing the link to our survey with your listeners on your website. It's going to be great to have as many people as possible looking at these flag designs and giving us their opinions on their designs. And now the spiel, it is an N-twin tig. Our name for the letter, listener feedback, and interaction segment. You know, the N-twin tig does more before 6 a.m. than most listener segments do all day. Here's a correction. I mentioned the WeWork series on Netflix. No, it's not on Netflix. It's on Apple+. Plus. Kevin Elgin invited me to his shared space of streaming service correction for that one. I noted... The Icelandic children's TV show Lonely Town was, I don't know, on the air doing whatever Lonely Town does. Nope, nope. Looked it up in the child's treasury of Icelandic TV shows. There never was a Lonely Town. There was a glacier town and a volcano town and a geyservania. But not a Lonely Town, just a lazy town. Lazy town. Thank you, Chris Earhart. You are rewarded with the theme song of Lazy Town. As the kids say, it slaps. On the Gist's Reddit page, which I so do enjoy, someone I think named uh, at twinge in my hamstring, a twinge in my hamstring. I thought it was an Antan twig thing. Someone named a twinge in my hamstring, which I relate to, wrote hopefully some real birders and environmentalists or environmentalists, if you want to say it correctly, will chime in. But even knowing Mike likes sarcasm and tweaking folks, I was a bit annoyed at his defense, I know, at least in part mocking, of cats killing birds. Now, let me just tell you something, a twinge. Even if I towed the party line on this, even if I came out four square against the cats, the cats would not care because they are remorseless bird killing machines who do not listen to the gist, but frequently interrupt the gist. I can play many, many moments of my own cat rubbing up against the mic in literally me and the microphone in what is, I can only assume, a prelude to their orgy of bird killing. But no, you're right. It was sarcastic. I'm a little bit mocking. And I don't like to pull back the veil. But I will say this. If I were to be given a truth serum and they asked me, what do you think of cats killing birds? I would say, it's really sad. And the cats should be kept inside so as not to kill the birds. But what's the fun in that? If that were the ethos, you'd never go see stand-up comedy. <coughs> uh, now a couple notes on pushback. The whole concept of pushback. So one nicely phrased note comes from Michael Blacker. Blacker. 
And he writes, I love the show, particularly for the way Mike is able to gently push back or challenge a guest with a question that at least makes the person consider another legitimate viewpoint. Why didn't he do that with Eve Fairbanks when she she gave credence to the notion that Israel is an apartheid state or more fairly an apartheid-like state? It's a mystery and it's a disappointment. She is entitled to her opinion. I think listeners would have benefited from my noting some legitimate counter perspectives. I will say why I didn't push back. Because in that case, it was my question that prompted Eve to answer at all about the comparison between Israel and the actual book she was writing about, South Africa. So had she in the book or in other writings have tried to make the claim that I know South Africa, this would be Eve talking, I've lived there years, and when I look at Israel, I see South Africa, then I certainly would have pushed back, argued a bit, or at least, you know, laid out the points that she wasn't making, so why even get into it now? But in the interview, I asked her uh, a general question about this, and she came up, she didn't have to, and she knows it's maybe a dangerous area, but She came up with the anecdote about a boyfriend who went to Israel and noticed a lot of things that reminded him of South Africa. So in that case, I don't think that it's appropriate to come in and say, well, your boyfriend's wrong, or I don't think you should share that anecdote. Or to be fair, I wouldn't say that, and I don't think Michael is saying I should say it like that. But I don't think that that is the point where we get into a, well, is Israel really like South Africa? Because the main gist, if you will, of the interview was about South Africa, not about Israel. Another call for pushback came in my interview with Kristen Zeman, the former police chief of Aurora, Illinois. So first of all, a quick fact correction prompted by Ray Charlton, who said that I referred to the police vehicle, the Bearcat, as a tank. It's not. It's an armored car. Tanks have caterpillar tracks running the length of the vehicle. Armored cars have wheels. Good to know. But I was criticized for lack of pushback about Commissioner Zeman endorsing the Bearcat. Now, let me tell you why I didn't push back in that case. The first question was a pushback or a somewhat challenging question. What do you think of the militarization of the police? Doesn't this prompt police forces and tempt police forces into using more military type products, just the fact that they have it around? And that is what engendered the discussion. If, after she told me that the Bearcat, thank God it was there because it helped in this one horrific incident of a mass shooting and it broke down some walls and possibly, you know, saved some people or averted more killing, I don't know what the pushback could have been. Yes, but what about the cases you don't need it? I don't know what the answer to that is. I kind of imagine what an answer could be, and either I say, ooh, she'll or he'll have no good answer for this, or, oh, I wonder what they do say. But in this case, and in the case where I don't really engage in pushback, if I know what the answer is going to be, it's sometimes worth not pursuing, especially if you know what the answer is going to be. Now, on the issue of policing, it wasn't that segment with the Aurora police chief, but on the segment where I talked about the decision by the special prosecutor in Atlanta not to charge the cops who killed Rayshard Brooks with a crime, I did get a lot of, let us say, pushback. So I will read you one of the more impassioned Reddit responses I got. It's from Mark Turntables, or maybe in England, Mark Turntables. That was easily the worst Mike Pesca take I've heard. Here's an idea, Mike. Whenever thinking about the police, ask yourself this, what if they do nothing? If the cops do nothing, but let the delusional and drunk man with a taser run away, what happens? They catch him a few minutes later, hiding in a bush, vomiting his guts, I assume out. I'm a huge fan, been listening from day one, and you really should do better. 
Well, I was actually going to engage in not that precise, what if they did nothing, or not that precise temporal locus of what if they do nothing. But there was a prominent argument about this made by Trevor Noah of The Daily Show. And I'll play this entire argument and address it. Maybe it's because I live in a utopian world where the police are truly just trying to protect and serve, not trying to write enough tickets, not trying to get enough people arrested, not trying to fill quotas. No, they're trying to protect and serve. In that instance, you would hope a policeman would say, sir, you do not look fit to drive. You said your sister lives around the corner. You said you live, let's take you, we'll take you home. We didn't find you driving drunk. We found you asleep in a car. So we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I think that would be terrible policing to give someone who was clearly drunk driving, who was the only person with the keys to his car and was drunk in the car, to give that person the benefit of the doubt. We want to take drunk drivers off the road once we catch drunk people in their cars, who was, by the way, according to McDonald's employees, being belligerent. The police should intercede. And they did try to intercede. And then it was, and this gets to the Mark Turntables argument, and then it was escalated by Rayshard Brooks, who broke out of police custody stole the taser, ran away, and fired at the cops, thus threatening them with incapacitation. Now, in the hypothetical, you could say, oh, what if this guy had stumbled and fallen and they would have caught him? Or not. What if he had just gotten away after assaulting a police officer, firing a taser at them, uh, putting aside the fact that he was most likely drunk driving? This would just be terrible policing. This would not be a society that we would sign up for where police act, not arresting drunk drivers, and then not pursuing people who assault them and steal their equipment and fire it at them. With any police killing, you could rewind and say, what if they had just taken 180 degree opposite actions, a person would be alive? Yes, that is true. Uh, With the horrible police shootings or police killings that should never have happened in the first place. I agree. Eric Garner just should have been left alone. But with the tragic police killings that turn tragic because of the legitimate interaction, yeah, you could make the argument that had the police done the opposite of what they had done, we would have had a living person today. And it's much more important to have a living person today than to have effectuated the arrest over the expired license or the bad left turn. But doing nothing when it comes to police is a horrible, terrible idea. I ask myself that and I answer quite forcefully, it's a terrible idea. What if the police hadn't shot and killed Ashley Babbitt? She probably could have just been searched and corralled or forcibly pushed back by hand. Yeah. And then Ashley Babbitt would be alive. I don't hear the same sort of people asking that about Richard Brooks, asking that about Ashley Babbitt because they don't really care if Ashley Babbitt is dead. But sure, every time there is a police killing, Something could have been done differently, so there wouldn't have been a police killing. But that is not how to get to a situation of more justice. That is just how to rewrite a tragic story hypothetically. Sometimes the police should not have been involved. Most times, doing nothing is not the right solution. Retraining is, rethinking laws and interpretation of the laws about when the police are libel and criminally and civilly libel for their shootings, that's all appropriate. But the let us retract, but doing nothing because we have these tragedies, that is an idea I have considered and asked myself and have answered, bad idea. But now let us move on to a happier story. We shall be rejoined by the guest we just heard from, Ted Kay, who will tell us about an email correspondence he received. 
I got a message from a, a New Mexico, a kid from New Mexico, 10 years old, who was visiting the Smithsonian and noticed that in the flags flying outside the Smithsonian, the New Mexico flag was incorrect. Uh-huh. And so he's he's trying to figure out how do I get the Smithsonian to fix its flag? And he and his mom wrote me an email, but here's here's what he wrote. According to your book, Good Flag, Bad Flag, New Mexico's is the best flag in the U.S. I think the Smithsonian National Museum of American History got the flag wrong. And the mom writes, basic Google searching has not helped us figure this out. I have heard you several times on the gist, Mike Pesca's podcast, and suggested Bennett reach out to you. Oh, Bennett. We could have him as a junior gister. You, you could. You, you know, he's, he's going to have a story. Yeah. He's going to have more than a story. He's going to have some results because a Smithsonian official, Jennifer Jones, who's the uh, curator and project director for military history there at the Smithsonian, looked outside. She's also a member of the NAVA board, she, or at least a member of NAVA. She looked outside and she said, yeah, that flag in New Mexico is wrong. I will now explain to you why it's wrong. Picture the New Mexico flag. I know you don't have to call it up on your computer if you're a just listener and a Ted K fan, but it is the yellow flag with the Zia Sun Circle lines emanating from it to form the sun. But in the flag displayed in the Smithsonian or outside the Smithsonian that day, the red circle was filled in. No, it is supposed to be a ring and not a disc. And Bennett got it. And then the Smithsonian subsequently changed it. And I have to say, after all this, that Bennett Weber not only got results, he got rewarded because he is the lobstar of the Antoine Tig. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, the AP, Joel Patterson, the SP, and Michelle Pesca, MP. She's CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.